So now we're all in this together. No red states or blue states. Just 50 anxious, pale states. This is a crisis that we have to face together by staying as far apart as possible. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Colbert. I really appreciate the laugh. I am a little scared. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Just a little. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. With From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon, on the Central Coast, on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950. KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, not to mention your favorite podcast site. It's a fantastic time to podcast. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me. From bradblog.com, thank you very much for joining us today. Hope everyone out there is doing okay, is hanging in there. I know that um, uh, you're probably not alone. If you're like me, uh, I have been walking around uh, the house every, uh, I don't know, every 15 minutes, half hour, an hour saying, this is crazy. This is just crazy. Uh, but Des, are, I mean, is that occurring to you? Oh, yeah. Every it's... few minutes basis these days? Yeah, every once in a while I get look outside, sun is shining, birds are singing, thinking, this is so weird. There's a global pandemic and things are very scary right now. It's very disorienting. And by the way, made scarier for folks in the Midwest uh, today and tonight where they may be facing a... Uh, tornado swarm. Oh, goody. So, uh, like, things aren't crazy enough already. Stay safe out there. Stay safe inside wherever you may be. We will be here right here with you at least for the next hour or so. Thank you again for joining us. We have some news for you. Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard has suspended her presidential campaign on Thursday, ending a long-shot effort that saw her feuding with Hillary Clinton, who had suggested she was a Russian asset and raising fears among Democrats that Gabbard would mount a third-party 2020 bid. Well, today, if there were any lingering questions, she made clear she would not mount an independent run for the White House. In an email and a video posted to Twitter, Gabbard pledged her support to former Vice President Joe Biden, saying, quote, it's clear that Democratic primary voters have chosen him 
to take on President Donald Trump in November. Noting their political differences, Gabbard said she respected Biden and had confidence in the motivations of his campaign effort. Although I may not agree with the vice president on every issue, I know that he has a good heart and he's motivated by his love for our country and the American people. I'm confident that he will lead our country guided by the spirit of aloha, respect and compassion, and thus help heal the divisiveness that has been tearing our country apart. So today, I'm suspending my presidential campaign and offering my full support to Vice President Joe Biden in his quest to bring our country together. Well, good luck at that. That, of course, leaves just two Democrats still standing in the race, though Biden, with a 300 or so delegate lead at this point, appears to have things pretty much sealed up, barring any sort of extraordinary event. Though how extraordinary an event would have to be at this point uh, to be considered extraordinary. Yes, I do not even wish to contemplate it. Indeed. Good point. That said, as of this hour, Bernie Sanders remains a candidate, though he has reportedly pulled all of his digital ads. And with all of the various postponements of primary elections in states across the country due to the coronavirus pandemic, the next scheduled primaries, if they happen, are now three weeks away on April 4. So really, there's no rush at this point for him to do anything. Uh, April 4, it would be in Alaska and Hawaii with a caucus in Wyoming, in case you're wondering, and in case they are actually still held at this point. Louisiana had been scheduled for that day as well but will not be uh, forcing the entire state to vote on germy touchscreen voting systems at the polls until at least June 20, when they have rescheduled for the time being, if they still plan on forcing voters into that horrific public health hazard. As we have been discussing quite a bit over the last couple of weeks and with some elections officials here on the show over the past several days, Uh, States and counties are now scrambling to rethink their primaries and even the November general election, looking at moving to vote-by-mail elections, potentially, for all voters, despite the uh, problems that those also could bring to the the case. We'll we'll have uh, maybe a bit more uh, on that uh, later today if we have time. But speaking of both members of Congress and of voting... Two lawmakers in the House of Representatives now, Congressman Ben McAdams, Democrat of Utah, and Mario Diaz-Ballart, Ballart, thank you, Republican from Florida. Uh, they both announced on Wednesday that they have COVID-19. They are the first members of Congress known to come down with the coronavirus. In a statement, McAdams revealed that he had taken a test for the coronavirus the day prior after developing, quote, a fever, a dry cough, and labored breathing. Well... I am glad that he was able to get a test and that he was able to get the results back so quickly. Must be nice. Or, as Donald Trump said on Tuesday when asked by reporters about the fact that celebrities and basketball stars and apparently members of Congress seem to have no trouble at all getting tested, Donald Trump said, and I quote, Perhaps that's been the story of life. That does happen on occasion. You're a hell of a president, dog. Keep up the good work, brother. 
In his uh, statement, Congressman McAdams said, uh, Today I learned that I tested positive. I'm still working for Utahns and pursuing efforts to get Utahns the resources they need as I continue doing my job from home until I know it is safe to end my self-quarantine. Diaz Ballert also announced that he had tested positive for the illness. I want everyone to know that I'm feeling much better, the Republican lawmaker said in a statement. However, it is important that everyone take this extremely seriously and follow CDC guidelines in order to avoid getting sick and mitigate the spread of the virus. Like McAdams, Diaz Ballart said that he will continue to work while under quarantine. Both congressmen were present in the U.S. House just last Friday night, early Saturday morning, to vote on the passage of a coronavirus relief bill. Given that it can take 10 days or so, I think that's what it is, before uh, in, in the infected begin to show symptoms, we should hope at this point that we don't have an epidemic of members of Congress coming down ill in the next few days. Yes, and we have no idea if there are contact tracing investigations going on for either one of those Congress members to find out where they got it from. Well, Did they get it from somebody in the U.S. House who was asymptomatic mm -hmm. and didn't get tested? Yeah, well, and we certainly know the contact tests that they were in contact with, you know, about 435 members of Congress. Yep. Last Friday, not to mention uh, hundreds more uh, staffers in uh, on Capitol Hill. So, uh, you know, I, I have wondered about this. Many Americans, you know, have been told they're working from home. They're self-quarantining. But members uh, on Capitol Hill have been up there voting on stuff uh, where it's pretty tough to avoid large crowds and apparently uh, to avoid infected co-workers. Certainly during votes on the floor and a lot of members of Congress are in the target age range where COVID-19 in particular turns deadly. Though both of those uh, congressmen are, are somewhat younger. Congresswoman Katie Porter, Democrat of California, meanwhile, has been pushing the leadership in Congress to allow for remote voting amid the outbreak. Since the founding of uh, Congress, you have had to actually physically be present to vote there. The legislative branch needs to be able to continue its work, however, writes the prospects David Dan, especially now. But it is a threat to their health to show up en masse in, uh, in, in the Capitol. A plan needs to be made, he argues. According to Associated Press... Katie Porter has gotten 45 lawmakers, including two Republicans, to sign a letter to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi calling for the chamber to allow for remote work, including voting. Porter told AP there's no reason not to model for our country what we are asking our fellow Americans to do right now. That proposal, however, would go against congressional rules that have been in place since the country's founding, which mandate that House members and senators be present in the chambers in order to cast votes. However, those are those are rules. That's not, for example, in the Constitution, as far as I know, and rules can be changed. Congressional leadership as of Wednesday... Of course, things are changing very quickly around here. But as of Wednesday, they have so far poured cold water on the idea, according to Vox.com's Caitlin Burns, shrugging off suggestions that the uh, two chambers full of mostly older people who constantly come in contact with constituents should take the same social distancing precautions as everyone else. 
What could possibly go wrong? Pelosi uh, has not yet publicly spoken about changing House rules. She has, uh, however, reportedly opposed the proposal in private. McConnell, in turn, told reporters this week that the Senate would not allow remote voting, instead making allowances for extended vote calls so that fewer senators at a time could enter into the chamber in order to cast votes. Of course, you know, that means they're still probably heading back to their offices to hang with their staffers. And touching things and coughing on people in, yeah, exactly, in the meantime. Exactly, yeah. Porter's letter goes on to argue that uh, while Congress is an institution with a proud history, we cannot stand on tradition if it puts lives and our ability to be the voice of our con- of our constituents at risk. The personal risk to lawmakers should a wave of COVID-19 hit Congress could be immense. Sixty six senators are over the age of 60. That is two thirds of the body with more than a quarter over 70 years of age, according to NBC News. As Vox's uh, Ella Nielsen and Lee Zhu uh, reported last week, Congress has long been reluctant to implement remote voting and other such practices, but the unprecedented circumstances presented by COVID-19 could force them to reconsider how they operate. And I suspect it will. Perhaps sooner rather than later at this point, if we see an outbreak coming out of the U.S. House in the next few days, and we could with those two Congress members uh, now taken ill. The ability for non-members of Congress and non-celebrities and non-basketball stars to get tests for the uh, virus, however, does not appear to be getting any easier for many people. Despite repeated BS claims from the president of the United States and the White House and the vice president to the contrary. The Wall Street Journal today that yes, the Rupert Murdoch owned Wall Street Journal today is reporting that there is currently, quote, coronavirus testing chaos across America. As cases of covid-19 have exploded across the U.S., state and local governments are taking on the task of testing for the coronavirus that causes it. And they have been quickly overwhelmed according to the journal, slowed by equipment shortages and struggling to keep pace. Officials have set up a chaotic patchwork of testing sites with access varying wildly from one place to another. Now some states and counties are pulling back. They're pulling back, using their limited resources to test only the most vulnerable. Testing their right is critical for infected people to get the treatment that they need and for health officials to accurately track the spread of the coronavirus. But it has been uh, it has proceeded far slower than experts say is necessary, in part due to a slow federal response, according to the journal. Of course, there is no reason for this slow, failed response from the federal government which has known about these uh, concerns for weeks, if not months. Well, I should say there's no reason. There's no reason if the federal government was in any way, shape or form uh, actually up to the task, actually competent in dealing with a crisis, as the Trump administration clearly is not. But it's not just the Trump administration. NPR obtained secret, privately recorded audio of U.S. Senator Richard Burr of North Carolina, from February. Keep in mind, February. 
which is forever ago in the age of the coronavirus. From February, he was speaking to wealthy Republican funders, pretty much spelling out everything that the nation is now going through, telling them about it, just not telling us about it. As NPR reports this morning, the chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee warned a small group of well-connected constituents three weeks ago to prepare for dire economic and societal effects of the coronavirus. The remarks from U.S. Senator Richard Burr were more stark than he had delivered in more public forums. On February 27, when the U.S. had 15 confirmed cases of COVID-19, Donald Trump was tamping down fears and suggesting that the virus could be seasonal. Quote, it's going to disappear, said Trump on that same day. One day it's like a miracle, it will disappear, the president said. On that same day, Richard Burr attended a luncheon held at a social club, and he delivered a much more alarming message. There's one thing that I can tell you about this. It is much more aggressive in its transmission than anything that we have seen in recent history. It's probably more akin to the 1918 pandemic. Every company should be cognizant of the fact that um, you may have to alter your travel. You may have to look at your employees and judge whether the trip they're making to Europe is essential or whether it can be done on video conference. Why risk it? Yeah, why risk it? Why risk it? Uh, you know, think about it. Maybe you shouldn't be sending your, uh, your your employees around the world for these meetings. Good question, Senator. Why risk it? Also, why not tell the American people that? Why not tell the American people the truth about what you knew that many of us, most of us, could not afford to hear because we couldn't pay thousands and thousands of dollars to be in your presence? Why couldn't the president of the United States say those things back on February 27? Those, what, three weeks or so before Donald Trump decided to finally begin taking this seriously could have made an enormous difference in how many people live and die in this country and what happens to the economy along with it. But thank you anyway, uh, Senator, for sharing that with your uh, small group of your wealthiest funders. That luncheon had been organized by the Tar Heel Circle. It's a group uh, whose membership consists of businesses and organizations in North Carolina. Membership in the Tar Heel Circle costs between $500 and $10,000 and promises the members, quote, enjoy interaction with top leaders and staff from Congress, the administration, and the private sector, according to the group's website. In, in, uh, in attendance, according to a copy of the RSVP list that was obtained by NPR, there were dozens of invited guests representing companies and organizations from North Carolina. According to federal records, those companies or their political committees donated more than $100,000 to Burr's election campaign in 2015 and 2016. Perhaps that's been the story of life. That does happen on occasion. Yes, it does. Thirteen days before the State Department began to warn against travel to Europe and 15 days before the Trump administration banned European travelers, Burr warned those in that room that could afford it that they should reconsider. Sixteen days before North Carolina closed its schools over the threat of the coronavirus, Burr warned that it could happen. 
He told them there will be, I'm sure, times the communities, probably in uh, some in North Carolina, have a transmission rate where they say, let's close schools for two weeks. Everybody stay home. And Burr invoked the possibility that the military might be mobilized to combat the coronavirus. Only now, three weeks later, is the public learning of that prospect, as Donald Trump has been pretending that he will be sending uh, military ships to uh, uh, hospital ships to both New York and uh, the West Coast. But apparently it's going to take some weeks, some weeks before those ships are actually there and ready to uh, open their uh, thousand. I think they have a thousand hospital beds in each one. Right. They have to be uh, ready for use and they also have to mobilize the personnel that are you know, scattered around the country that have to be brought there. Burr told these people, quote, we're going to send a military hospital there. It's going to be intense and it's going to be set up on the ground somewhere. He said at the luncheon, it's going to be a decision the president and the Department of Defense make. And we're going to have medical professionals supplemented by local staff to treat the people that need treatment. All the same stuff that's actually happening now, three weeks later. But in public, his comments at the time about the threat of COVID-19, Burr did not give that kind of warning the one that he delivered to the small group of his well, uh, I wanted to say well-endowed constituents, but that's not exactly what I mean. Uh, and now uh, constituents all across the nation are, uh, are paying the price. The uh, journal notes that the uh, chaos simply trying to have a test at this time is playing out daily all over the country. As Americans uh, are, are trying but failing to get help from their local governments. Feeling sick on Friday, for example, Rachel Willingham went to the doctor who gave her an order for the new coronavirus test and sent her to a mobile clinic that the Colorado Health Department had set up. When she arrived at 9.45 a.m., there were a half dozen police officers blocking the entrance. She returned to the clinic in the afternoon, but was told the testing was over for that day. Willingham then called a number for the state health department and was told to come back Saturday at noon. She did, only to find that testing had been moved to the Denver Coliseum. When she got to the stadium, she waited in a line of hundreds of cars for almost two hours, only to be turned away again with no explanation whatsoever. Mind you, this is someone who is sick, who has been told by the doctor that she should get the coronavirus test. The, the, the Colorado Health Department uh, now reportedly has moved that mobile testing clinic in Denver that Willingham att attempted to access. They've moved it to the tiny mountain town of Telluride. What? Yes. That's like hours away. It's six hours away. Okay. Uh, officials said they had no plans to reopen one in Denver. And they, they've they uh, pivoted uh, to targeted testing of the most vulnerable individuals throughout Colorado. The state can process only about 250 tests a day. But even there, a backlog means results will take as many as five days to, to find out if they are sick. Contrast that to the uh, members of Congress who took the test yesterday and found out today they they have the, the virus. 
After initially offering widespread testing up in Minnesota, officials uh, retrenched uh, earlier in the week, limiting testing to healthcare workers, inpatients at hospitals, and people in group living facilities. The commissioner of the Minnesota Health Department said that high demand made testing everyone who might be infected impossible. The state was forced to freeze 1,700 samples due to a shortage of supplies. According to uh, uh, the governor on Wednesday, we don't have the testing capacity, he said. On Wednesday, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem said that its state lab was forced to temporarily stop processing tests because it ran out of the necessary supplies. So even in cases where people are getting tests, they're getting tested, but nobody can check the test. They've run out of the chemicals needed to test the test. How can this happen? How can this be bungled nationally so horrifically? Anxious for uh, help as cases rise, states including Minnesota and New Mexico have called on the federal government and manufacturers for assistance obtaining supplies such as personal protective equipment, PPE, And testing devices, the Trump administration, meanwhile, has said that it is shifting its strategy for containing the outbreak away from testing and towards social distancing. Never mind all those tests. We don't need them anyway. Just, you know, stay away from each other. That's what we need to do. I, 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 I don't know. Uh, I, I'm certain that Americans do not understand, uh, frankly, how bad this could actually get. But I, I, I don't think any of us appreciate what a monumental, monumental screw up this has been. This will have been seen as from our federal government, but most specifically from this administration. Just one other example here before we get to a break uh, in Ojai, California. This is also from the journal uh, Ojai, California. This is uh, north of L.A., out here, a Colleen Byram tried in vain last week to get a test after she began running a 103-degree fever. Fever. 103 degrees. At first, the 61-year-old was told by a receptionist who picked up the phone at Ojai Valley Community Hospital to come to the emergency parking lot for a test. But when she arrived, she was told that was not possible and that she should see her doctor on Monday. Upset, Ms. Byram called the emergency room back and was given a number for the CDC, which went to a recorded message telling her to call back Monday. After calling the ER again, she was given the number to the County Infectious Disease Response Team, which also led to a voice message. The ER finally told her that she did not meet the criteria to get tested because, wait for it, she hadn't traveled to China, she hadn't been on a cruise ship, nor had she been in contact with someone known to have the coronavirus infection. Again, she is 61 years old, she has a 103-degree temperature, and she cannot get a test. Well, as Donald Trump likes to say... Perhaps that's been the story of life. That does happen on occasion. Finally, by the way, she was able to reach another local doctor who said there simply weren't enough testing kits to go around. She told the uh, journal that it's hard to advocate for yourself when you're sick. 
It is not only physically exertional, it is emotionally exertional, she said. I bet. She's not only 61 years old, she's got a 103-degree fever. (sighs) Okay, then. Meanwhile, uh, let's take a break here, and we'll come back with some genuinely good news. A very little bit, mind you, so don't get too excited. Uh, But some genuinely good news, at least out of one country which didn't screw up its response, or at least it took action quickly enough after realizing the problems that they uh, now appear to have made some major headway on. Uh, That might offer a ray of hope. That's ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. That was uh, one of several. There's been quite a few of those uh, videos circulating out there. That was from Italy. Quite a few uh, videos of folks in Italy singing from their balconies. To each other. To each other, with each other, as they are quarantined throughout what is uh, has been a particularly hard hit Italy uh, and uh, getting worse at this point by the day in Italy. Uh, did I say welcome back to the broadcast? Well, you did now. Yeah. Thursday was a day of contrasts on the front lines of the battle, according to AP, against the new coronavirus. In a sign of hope, the Chinese city of Wuhan And this is a genuine uh, sign of hope, I would say. Wuhan reported no new homegrown infections. But in a stark warning for the world, Italy has now surpassed China's death toll from the virus. The two milestones were a dramatic illustration of how much the global outbreak has pivoted toward Europe and the U.S., They also showed how the arc of contagion can vary in different nations as Italy with 60 million people braces to see more carnage than China, a nation of 1.4 billion. Italy registered on Wednesday 2,978 deaths after another 475 people died. In one day, one 24-hour period, 475 people in a single day. That was Wednesday, 
And, of course, given that Italy had been averaging more than 350 deaths a day since the middle of March, since March 15, it was no surprise today that they have now overtaken China. Overtaken China in the number of deaths with 3,405 fatalities from the virus reported as of this afternoon. That outpaces China's total death toll of 3,242. And again, uh, Italy has 60 million people. China has 1.4 billion. So uh, this uh, 300, uh, I'm sorry, 3,405 uh, total cases now uh, in Italy, uh, total deaths, I should say, in Italy, with more than 41,000 now uh, reporting uh, being infected, with more than 5,300 new cases reported on Thursday alone. So they are clearly still on the upslope of this pandemic. Uh, U.N. and Italian health authorities have cited a variety of reasons for Italy's high uh, death toll. Key among them is its large elderly po uh, population who are particularly susceptible to developing serious complications from the virus. And I have to say, you know, I spent uh, some time in Italy some years ago working out there and spent some time up in Milan. And that's where sort of this uh, the hardest hit region is up north in northern Italy. Right. And they are not like uh, us in the U.S. here. They congregate in huge crowds together, not just on weekends, but weeknights. They go out, they, they play together, they play bocce together, they walk, they talk. Huge crowds of young people uh, congregate, uh, you know, in some of these areas. They are very social. They are a very social people. And uh, I could see, uh, in addition to the, uh, to the deaths because of their... Uh, elderly population, I could see how it would spread so quickly in some pla in, in places like Italy and in, in northern Italy in particular. Jonas Schmidt Chanasit, a virologist at Germany's Bernhard Nocht Institute for Tropical Medicine, said that Italy's high death rate uh, could be explained in part by the almost total collapse of the health system in some parts. He said, and then people die who wouldn't have died with a timely intervention. That's what happens when the health system collapses. And at least when it comes to testing right now in the U.S., I'd say we have already collapsed. When someone is, uh, you know, has a 103 degree fever in the middle of a pandemic, is 61 years old and cannot even get a test to find out, you know, it, it's it's obscene, frankly is what it is, and it is a collapse of the healthcare system. In the meantime, the news from China's central city of Wuhan, where the virus first emerged uh, late last year, offered a glimmer, a rare glimmer of hope, and perhaps a lesson in the strict measures that are needed to halt its spread. Wuhan once was the place where thousands lay sick or dying in hurriedly constructed hospitals. They built hospitals there in 10 days entire hospitals. But Chinese authorities said on Thursday that all 34, just 34 new cases that were recorded over the previous days uh, had all been imported from abroad. So no new cases springing up in Wuhan. Today, their uh, senior inspector at the uh, National Health Commissioner said, today we have seen the dawn after so many days of hard effort. And in a particularly hopeful sign that some uh, may be able to relate to, Apple 
has now reopened its uh, all 42 of its retail stores in China. Well, that, that is definitely so, a sign of, of change. So there may be someday an end to this nightmare. Well, at least in China. Good for them. While China did not report any new cases in Wuhan or the Hubei province, uh, it did record eight additional deaths. Wuhan has been under a strict lockdown since January, but just, uh, frankly, eight deaths after the number that they, numbers that they have been seeing, that, too, is uh, a very good sign. Uh, still, compared to the death rate, you know, that the places like, like, like they had seen and now the death rate in places like Italy right now, which many have cited as a model for what the U.S. may expect, what we may look like in a few days or weeks, you know, where we where we find these rays of hope, I think uh, we ought to embrace them. Uh, but the Chinese uh, coronavirus experts, they're warning that Italy's seemingly draconian lockdowns leading to people locked in t- into their houses and apartments singing out on their balconies together, that those lockdowns across the entire country are, in the words of the Chinese coronavirus experts, not strict enough. Mm, really? Yep. Still, in China, at least, that's uh, some genuinely good news there, uh, where their quarantine restrictions are far more authoritarian than ours or even Italy's. But their response at the national level was also far more coherent and coordinated. And yes, uh, even in non-authoritarian South Korea, they've been able to test 10,000 people a day which we are nowhere near in a country that is six times as large as South Korea and where their numbers, by the way, have also been going down for several days, thankfully. Still, the virus, which has infected now 222,000 people around the world, is taking its toll both in human and economic terms, including here in the U.S., as new numbers out today make crystal clear. Unless the federal government wishes to ignore those as well, you know, in honor of praising dear leader, which they seem to do quite a bit of when they hold these White House uh, briefings. Thanks to the leadership of uh, the early response to our president to. uh, Well, thanks to him for nothing, nothing less than nothing in Ohio. More than 48,000 people applied for jobless benefits during the first two days of this week. The tally during the same period the prior week was 1,825. Got that? 1,800 people last week applying for uh, unemployment, 48,000 one week later. In neighboring Pennsylvania, about 70,000 people sought unemployment aid in one single day. That is six times the total for the entire previous week. Jobless claims are now surging across the U.S. after government officials ordered millions of workers, students, and shoppers to stay at home as a precaution against spreading the virus. The growing number of people filing for uh, unemployment checks raises fresh questions about whether states have stockpiled enough money since the last recession to tide over idled workers until this crisis ends. Some fear the demand for help could outpace the state's ability to pay claims. And let me go on record here. I'm not an economist. I don't know. I have no idea what I'm talking about, except I do. And I can tell you that, yes, the demand for help 
will definitely outpace the state's ability to pay claims. Definitely. And uh, almost, as Donald Trump would say, in record time. Governor Gina Raimondo of Rhode Island, where coronavirus-related jobless claims accelerated from zero to nearly 18,000 in barely one week, said, Our unemployment insurance fund is getting hit pretty hard right now. She's a Democrat. She appealed for help from the federal government. And here lies the problem. Many states across the country have balanced budget amendments or statutes that uh, disallow them from spending any more money than they are taking in. Now, Democrats and Republicans alike across the country, but especially Republicans, have pushed for these measures over the years under the guise of fiscal responsibility. We want to show how how conservative we are. And again, even Democrats doing this, uh, you know, the idea government should be run like a business. We should not be, you know, paying, putting out uh, more than we are taking in. But government is not a business. Government is a public service. And so tying the hands of these governments, of these state governments, so that they cannot borrow money easily in times of crisis. Well, crisis like this, that is just insane. But that is where those states are, and so they have to turn to the federal government. But, you know, of course, that whole thinking, that whole line of thinking is all part of Ronald Reagan's decade-old con, the original con, the original sin, that, you know, government isn't the solution, government is, is the problem, said Ronald Reagan. Well, it sure is uh, the only damned solution right now at times like this, isn't it? And and it was this the only solution during the global financial meltdown, the, the previous one I'm talking about, because this one may be as bad. It was also the only solution after 9-11. Those Republicans who pretend to hate government, hate big government, well, they sure do love big government when it actually, uh, you know, when we all actually need it to save the people of the nation and the world, or at least they like it when it's going to save, you know, companies and the world and the banking system. But, uh, you know, the idea that, oh, we have to have small government, we have to operate our government like we uh, like a business, like our family. We can't spend more than we take in. Well, you know what? Your family spends more than you take in. Did you buy a house? Did you get a mortgage? Do, do, you know, do, do you use a credit card? Of course you do. That's what people do all the time. And so when Republicans pretend that the federal government should not be doing that, at the same time, they're uh, giving tax cuts to the rich and the wealthy who do not need it and, you know, lowering uh, the ability, the ability to manage crises like this. The very tools, the very tools that we would use. Sure, you can say, oh, no one could have foreseen this uh, pandemic. Well, actually, we did foresee the pandemic and Barack Obama had set up a pandemic response team in the White House National Security Council, which Donald Trump subsequently got rid of. So there's really nobody there to handle it, to do the things that they might have done in advance, make sure we have enough masks, enough ventilators, enough tests, enough hospital beds, all of the things that we clearly need and don't have and still don't have weeks and months after we had known that this was coming here, weeks after, you know, the, the, the Republican uh, head of the Senate Intelligence Committee was telling his buddies about this, that, that it was coming. 
But we don't have the tools to mitigate this disaster because uh, the things that we would normally do, all of that has largely been spent by the Republicans and the Trump administration over the past three years when they burned recession-fighting tools like tax cuts and the lowering of interest rates. And they did all of that in the middle of an economic boom over the past few years. So now taxes have already been cut to the bone, leading, by the way, to huge deficit spending, which they used to pretend they were against. And the cost of borrowing money was already lowered by the Fed to almost nothing after Donald Trump's continued haranguing year after year to force them uh, to lower interest rates. And now uh, it, it has been lowered altogether to now. It be, now it was almost nothing. Now it actually is at nothing. The uh, the interest rate to borrow money. So this is about as good as it gets. We have run out of immediate uh, fiscal tools that we might have otherwise used, like tax cuts. Instead, we blew them in the middle of a boom. And many of us warned about that at the time. Never mind us. Never mind me. Many uh, economists warned about that at the time. And there are not many other tools left other than to just keep borrowing and uh, deficit spending and specifically giving out money, free money. You know, the socialism that Republicans pretend to abhor until they need the socialism to save their asses. Then they cannot wait to run to big government, the same big government that they pretend to hate, can they? And please note, you MAGA jackasses out there, this happens every single time. Remember the last time that we had a Republican president and a government that pretended to, to hate government and socialism? How did that end? How did, I can't remember now. How did the George W. Bush administration end? Did that go well? Did that show us the uh, how the party of fiscal conservatism was going to lead us into uh, a greater day? How did that end? Hmm. Oh, yeah, it was the worst fiscal crisis since the Great Depression. And how will this Republican administration hopefully end? Well, it looks like it's going to end with a, uh, a crisis that could make the last Great Recession look like a picnic. And I, by the way, I don't mean uh, that's how I want the, this administration to end. What I mean is I want this administration to end. And I want to make sure that Donald Trump is not reelected for another four hellish years. In case you haven't enjoyed the first uh, three and a half hellish years quite enough yet. President uh, Trump's administration is proposing an economic stimulus package that could approach $1 trillion and include uh, sending checks to every American within a matter of weeks to help them pay for groceries and bills and mortgages and rent. Uh, the Senate gave final approval uh, Wednesday to a separate bill that would inject $1 billion into state unemployment insurance programs, but that is nothing. That is nothing. We had to put $40 billion into the into the uninsurance uh, unemployment insurance programs uh, last time. Uh, today, Mitch McConnell is now floating the idea. Remember, these guys were planning to run against socialism, right? Uh, when they thought Bernie Sanders was going to win the nomination. Now, today, in the U.S. Senate, 
Mitch McConnell is talking about cutting checks for 12, I think $1,200 per person, $2,400 per couple. They're just going to start sending those to people. Now, that, too, is nothing, is going to be not nearly enough for what is needed here. But sure, they're just handing out money. And by the way, let's not get that Bernie Sanders in office. He's a crazy socialist. The last recession to uh, led to uh, insolvency of the unemployment trust in 35 states. It uh, collectively racked, racked up more than $40 billion of debt to keep paying unemployed workers. But don't worry, Congress acted quickly. They put in a billion dollars. Kansas lawmakers worked quickly on Tuesday to pass legislation that eliminates a one-week wait time to begin receiving benefits, very thoughtful of them, and expands their, uh, the duration of those benefits from 16 weeks to 26 weeks. But House Commerce Committee Chair uh, Congressman Sean Tarwater, a Republican, expressed concern that the economic problems caused by the virus pandemic could deplete the state's unemployment fund in much less than a year, even though it's ranked in the top quarter nationally. So this is one of the best that they have in Kansas, and he thinks they're they're also going to run out of money pretty soon. He said what we are seeing is something totally unique here where the switch has flipped from historically low claims uh, numbers to uh, unemployment numbers to a dramatic escalation that's going to affect multiple segments of the economy. That, according to the Kansas Deputy Labor Department Secretary, Brett Flaxbarth. Well, uh, of course, you know, that's why you don't blow your whole wad during an economic boom. As Republicans and Donald Trump did with their trillion-dollar tax cut, That did not go into the economy, that money. It went into the pockets of millionaires and billionaires. Kansas did the same thing for years, gave tax cut after tax cut, so they got nothing left to give. And now there's nothing left to cut. Great job, guys. Too bad this is FCC radio, or or I'd have a few more choice words, frankly, right now that I would uh, share. Instead, we will take a break. I will cool off, maybe. And Desi Doyen will be here with a Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. It's not easy being green. It seems you blend in with so many other ordinary things. Now that's the uh, that's the music we and used to play a long time ago. A long time ago, when we went into the Green News Report, we felt like oh, it wasn't. It was it was too grim, too sad, and so we used Melt with You instead. But for and some reason, yeah, it's a little appropriate for today. Uh, I think. It feels like it, and yet at the same time, hearing Kermit T. Frog somehow lifts my spirits, lifts my soul. As I said, we got to take it where we can get it. So let's get to it. Our latest 
Green News Report. There is physically nowhere to put it and no one to consume it. Crashing oil prices have ominous implications for oil companies and oil-producing nations. Melting ice caps put sea level rise on track for scientists' worst-case scenario. Plus, more perverse silver linings as COVID-19 shutdown reduces water pollution. All of that perversity and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. I don't know how you guys are feeling tonight, but I am staying positive. Not not testing positive, just staying positive. (laughs) This is your Green News Report. Staying positive, I believe that the bottle of Purell is half full. Okay, Desi Doyen, I don't know how you do it. You take something as terrible and horrible and awful as the coronavirus... And find that silver lining somehow. Indeed. We have been reporting how these coronavirus shutdowns around the world have had unintended benefits in cleaning up the air. Well, here's a new one. As Italy's nationwide lockdown enters its second week due to the coronavirus pandemic, Reuters reports that the water in the famous canals of Venice is now crystal clear, (laughs) with fish clearly visible, and even a dolphin was photographed swimming in a canal for the first time in 60 years. Now, why is the water clear in the Venice canals? Because there are no boats to stir up sediment and leave pollution, and there aren't any tourists leaving pollution either. So if we just got rid of all the humans, the planet would be fine. (laughs) Well, yes. And that is kind of what scientists are suggesting. That we get rid of humans? No, no, no. They say that the crisis is offering us lessons for how society can address climate change, but that's only if we choose to pay attention to them. So if we actually all take action all at once, we can actually accomplish something in a relatively short period of time. Yes. Well, I guess it takes a deadly virus and a global pandemic to force us to do that. Around the world, governments are grappling with how to stem the economic fallout from the coronavirus shutdowns. The head of the International Energy Agency, Fatih Birol, this week called on heads of state and international financial institutions to utilize the crisis as an opportunity to take action on climate change by building sustainability into their recovery plans as a requirement to receive assistance. Well, there's an idea and another potential silver lining. Birol told Climate News, quote, this is an historic opportunity for the world to, on one hand, create packages to recover the economy, but on the other hand, to reduce dirty investments and accelerate the energy transition. I like that idea. Here in the U.S., the Trump White House has asked Congress for a $1 trillion coronavirus relief and economic stimulus plan that includes industry-specific bailouts, including a $50 billion bailout for the airline industry. Because air travel is an increasingly important contributor to global warming, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island has proposed requiring any aid to airlines come with conditions requiring them to cut their greenhouse gas emissions over time. I like that, too. Whitehouse said in a statement, quote, If we give the airline and cruise industries assistance without requiring them to be better environmental stewards, we would miss a major opportunity to combat climate change and ocean dumping. Yeah, we don't have to just give them free money like we've done before. We can 
attach a few strings. Thank you. Oil giant ExxonMobil on Wednesday announced it will, quote, enact significant spending cuts due to the plunge in oil prices caused by the coronavirus pandemic, crushing demand for its product. So spending cuts like they'll stop their stock buybacks with all of that tax cut money we gave them? And potentially reducing exploration. Industry analysts called it a stunning reversal for the largest U.S. oil producer. Exxon's stock is now at a 17-year low. On CNBC, former oil CEO David Ramsden Wood warned that the debt-ridden drilling industry, which had already created an oversupply before the pandemic, must now pull back production immediately. We don't shut in. Storage gets full. Oil goes to zero and then producers shut in. There's no other mathematical way because there is physically nowhere to put it and no one to consume it. The collapse in global oil prices affects more than just the oil industry. The International Energy Agency this week warned of a potentially ominous consequence with very serious repercussions for nations that get the majority of their revenue from oil sales, warning that they could see their national incomes crater between 50 to 85 percent this year alone. Mm. The loss of operating revenue has very troubling implications that the IEA cautioned is likely to have major social and economic consequences, particularly for nations in the volatile Middle East. Finally, looming behind all of this is still the climate crisis. New satellite data finds that the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets are losing ice six times faster than they were in the 1990s. And if the current melting trend continues, NASA says the world will be on track to match the worst case scenario for sea level rise projected by the United Nations. I like that silver lining stuff you had at the beginning better. Mm-hmm. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Thanks for the dime. Soon the pain will be gone. Because every cloud has a silver lining. Hey! There's got to be a silver lining out there somewhere. We'll keep looking. Uh, not one, however, in the U.S. Senate, by the way. Uh, I uh, looked a little bit more into this story. Yes, uh, they're talking about cutting uh, checks for $1,200 for taxpayers in this $1 trillion Senate Republican bill, uh, which also includes large corporate tax cuts. Of course they do. I guess there are still some taxes that they are still uh, forced to pay. Who knew? I thought we cut them all down to zero by now. Well, let's get rid of those last ones, apparently, is what McConnell wants to do. Let's get rid of McConnell, shall we? And Donald Trump along with it. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyne, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. We're glad that we could be here for you. Thank you for being there for us. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you who support our work. If you can still afford to do so, it is greatly appreciated. Uh, any amount you like at bradblog.com slash donate as we uh, fight to stay on your public airwaves. Drop me an email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Bradblog. See you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. We're going to be all right. We're going to be just fine. Maybe there's no need for crying. It's dark for the dawn. Soon the fame will be gone. Because every cloud has a silver lining. Hey!